are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a date when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michael. All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you already for the ways that we've encountered you, your grace, your glory in these different parts of our worship service. And now as we open your word, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit, that you would make our hearts to be able to see by faith all that you say that you are. Help us to not only recognize it, but help us to believe it believe these things to be true, and we pray that you would form our lives accordingly. Uh, so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, come and, and be pleased with the meditations of our heart, and help your servant as I try to communicate what you say in your word. Uh, be near to us. We need you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're continuing in our study of the Apostles' Creed. That's the oldest and most widely embraced, most widely used summary of Christian beliefs that we have in the Christian tradition. And as we heard, as we confessed the creed earlier, we heard that it begins, I believe in God. And so it begins with a, a broad and reasonable starting point. And yet if we think about it, it's wise for us to recognize that even here, this conviction shouldn't be taken for granted. I believe in God. It shouldn't be taken for granted, even especially in a city like D.C. In fact, I was noticing this past week that according to a survey that was conducted by Gallup, when asked, do you believe in God, 81% of Americans that were surveyed said, yes, they do. 81%. Now, that's still a high number, but in fact, it's actually the lowest number ever on record since that survey question was given to respondents in 1944. So belief in God is declining. And then also when asked if they were certain, so not just do you believe, but are you certain that God exists according to a different study conducted by the University of Chicago, that number then drops down to 50%. Only half of all Americans are sure, they say, that God exists. Maybe you yourself today would include yourself 
in that number. We're glad that you're here. So it's helpful. It's helpful, maybe even crucial in this generation that's uncertain about what they believe about God, not only to affirm with the creed, I believe in God, but also to describe who that God is, who it is that we believe, who it is that the Christian faith says that God is, what we say we believe about him. So the creed helpfully continues, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Pastor Yancey preached on this conviction last week. God is a Father. He's an Almighty Father. Today, we're looking at the next piece, another core Christian belief about God, and that is that God is maker of heaven and earth. We're going to look at this by peering through the lens of Acts chapter 17. This is where the Apostle Paul is giving a sermon or a speech in the great Greek city of Athens, standing there in the Areopagus, which is literally translated the hill or uh, the hill of Ares, the god, or Mars Hill. And it's a place where a council of elders in that great city would often gather together, sometimes for a philosophical debate at other times for judicial decisions. And so Paul here is engaging with the most thoughtful minds in the city, sort of in the town square. He's engaging with neighbors with completely different beliefs about God, or rather about the gods for them. Well, what is it that Paul said? What does he teach? What do we need to hear? Well, we hear three things about God. We'll go through this quickly. Number one, that God made everything. Number two, God is unmade. And number three, God made us. Let's take a look at these three proposals, propositions, truths, and let's take them one at a time. So number one, God made everything. Verse 24 tells us that Paul preaches this, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Heaven and earth, of course, is a, an ancient Hebrew idiom that refers to all things. Uh, everything seen and unseen. Uh, visible and invisible. Spiritual and material. God is the creator. He's the maker of everything in the universe. Now, immediately, a question might come to your mind, maybe some version of a question that my six-year-old asked me recently over dinner. She said, Daddy, if God made everything, did he make this spaghetti? She asked, pointing at her dinner with a little wry smile on her face. She knew she was asking a trick question. And so, of course, we talked about it, and I explained how daddy and mommy cooked the spaghetti in the kitchen. So yes, we made the spaghetti, but also how God made us. He gives us life and the ability to make this spaghetti. And we kept talking, and I said how we bought the tomato sauce from Safeway, and the truck drivers brought the sauce to the store a couple weeks before, and the farmers grew the 
tomatoes. So yes, many people helped to make this spaghetti, but God gave life to the farmers, and God made the tomatoes, and so also did the engineers who genetically modified. No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I, I didn't say that part. Uh, that was a different conversation. God made the sun. God made the rain. God made the soil to help the tomatoes to grow. And so, yes, God made the spaghetti, and so did we. In other words, what was I trying to do there with that question in, in sort of first-grade terms? I was trying to distinguish between what philosophers call first causes and, and, and second causes, right? Where daddy and farmers and truck drivers you know, were all creators, makers of a kind, putting our hands to the things that we find in this world, including the seats that you're sitting in, the light bulbs that are lighting this room and the electricity that's coursing through this microphone. We are, in a sense, creators, but second causes. But God is the first cause of all things, the maker behind the maker, the ultimate origin of all things. And this is what the Apostles' Creed and what Acts chapter 17 is declaring, that God made the raw materials of this universe and in fact, we're told in the Bible that he did it ec nihilo, an old Latin phrase that just means out of nothing. He spoke things into existence. That's how powerful he is. He just imagines things into being, is the sort of creator that he is, creating out of nothing. And then after having done that, providing the raw materials of this world, he establishes natural laws, and he employs people as his creator agents in this world by which more of the world will be generated and preserved and sustained and made. And this is the world that God has given to us. And then we're also told after making this world, God hasn't to this day abandoned it. He's still invested. He continues to care for his creation. He's a life giver. He's a life sustainer. And so the apostle says in the second half of verse 25, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everyone else. And this is the time when it's good to do what Classe led us in doing in the beginning of our preparatory song, which is to take in a deep breath and to recognize even that breath is a gift from God. And the apostle says in verse 27, he's not far from any one of us. He's involved, he's, in, he's invested. You're not alone in this chaotic world. God is not out of reach. No, you might feel that you're alone or disconnected. You're not out of God's reach. And the apostle continues in verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. And he doesn't stop there. He even says, the apostle says, that God guides and directs human history and the events of our world. Verse 26, he made all the nations, marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In fact, God cares so much for the world that he's made as creator 
He cares so much that no matter how wrecked it's gotten, no matter how decayed, no, how, how, no matter how twisted by the fall and by the sin of humanity it might have gotten and continues to be, God is not going to trash his creation. He's going to redeem it all. He loves not only the people that he's made, he loves all things that he's made. He's going to redeem it all. And you here have to understand just how radical this was to Paul's audience to hear. Because in the ancient world, in Greek and Roman thought at the time, you may know that the, the physical world to them was something that was inherently evil and irredeemable. It was just stuff, broken flesh, dirt. What really mattered, what, what God really cares about is, is spiritual things, non-physical things. And so therefore, religion's goal is to get you out of the stuff of this world and into some spiritual ether. And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. Let me tell you a story about a God who loves it all and who's going to redeem it all, and that the goal of our faith is not to escape this physical world, but rather to wait upon God who's going to fix and repair it all. See, the errors that the apostle was cre uh, correcting is not just an error from ancient times. It's an error that even many Christians often believe, which is the misconception that God's only concern is about spiritual things and the things that you eat and the bodies that you carry and the things that you put your hands to. God doesn't really care about that stuff, and the goal of everything is just to get out of this world and escape and run away and go to heaven, and that's not the case because do you know the last chapter of the story of the Bible? It's not that we all go away to heaven and run away. It's no heaven comes down to earth. Heaven comes down to fill all things of physical forever because that's how God made his world to be. Paul introduces something entirely different, a faith that affirms the world, affirms bodies, affirms stuff. Do you? Do we? That's why Paul's climax of his sermon in verse 31 speaks of a God raising Jesus from the dead physically. You see, because stuff like this right here, pinch yourself, it matters to God. God made everything, and that changes everything. God made everything. That changes everything. How? What difference should this make to believe that God made everything? God is a creator of everything. I mean, there's a long list of ways that we can sort through all the implications of believing this about God and our world. But let me give you just two real quickly. Number one, wonder. If this is true, that God made all things, including the spaghetti on your table, including the physical bodies that you are, including the things that you touch and put your hands to, including the trees and the mountains and the squirrels, yes, the rats, we must confess. Then it's an invitation to see God in all things. By which I don't mean that those things are themselves God, which would be pantheism, right? The belief that God is all things. There's a distinction that we need to maintain, that the Bible maintains. 
but to see the fingerprints of God, the maker's hands, not only in making things, but in caring for, guiding and directing. He is not far from us. He is invested and involved in all of us. And so then we can look out into the world and look out into the community and look out and see the wonder of God in all things. Do you? Do you see his fingerprints all around you? Are you training your eyes, the eyes of your heart, in fact, because it's a matter of faith, to recognize God? Everywhere you go, his creativity, his delight. Are you going out into the world with delight and curiosity, agreeing with the psalmist in Psalm 19 that the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim, preach to you the work of his hands? Do you see God everywhere? And not just God as a, a mechanic or a manufacturer, but do you see the beauty of the artist that God is? Our kids have a book that is sort of this early age book that's teaching kids how to pray, and one of the pages has this little girl learning to recognize how to thank God for the flowers that she sees outside her windows, and she just declares, God, you're so good at making things. Maybe that's a prayer, an exclamation of wonder that you need to put on your mouths sometime this week. God, you're so good at making things. How did you do it? Wonder. Secondly, God makes everything, God made everything. Well, that then means stewardship. We're called to be responsible stewards, caretakers, temporary caregivers of the physical world that God has made. We ought to care for the natural world. There might be in this room a range of different views on what is commonly referred to as environmentalism. Forget the ism. God does care that we care for his creation. We must. And Christians, in fact, should have among the highest views of the natural world that God has made. And not only his natural world, but also our own physical bodies. The stewardship of our own health is part of our, or flows out of, our convictions about God as our creator. Your body is a stewardship. It doesn't ultimately belong to you. It belongs to God because he made you. But a stewardship of the world also means not only caring for things, it also means enjoying them appropriately. Do you have freedom of soul to say, a good meal is something that I'm called to enjoy? Uh, to go find that thing that you like, and, and not only just the food that you eat, but the physical pleasures that you enjoy, and taking a hike and enjoying nature, or whatever it might be the ways in which you actually experience this world, that too is part of your sacrifice of worship to God. Lifting up your bodies, enjoying the world that God has made. That is why this summertime as people travel, or maybe you're not able to travel, but you're just in a different mode as summer often invites us to be. We have a wonderful opportunity of living out these convictions, of being outside, looking at the world, saying, God, you're so good at making things, enjoying and delighting in the world that he's made. This summer, will you behold your creator? God made everything, number one. Number two, God himself is unmade. 
Look at verse 24, second half. God does not live in temples built by human hands. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Notice Paul makes two quick truth claims here. First, God does not live in physical temples. That means he's not confined to physical space. No. God is a spirit. He has no body. He's invisible, infinite. He's everywhere, omnipresent. And second, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God is not dependent upon us for anything. He was not made by anything or anyone. And if he were that anything or anyone would themselves be God and not God. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. He is uncreated, unmade. God doesn't get life from any of us. He gives life. He's the source of life. And he gives, and he gives life and everything else. In other words, he's perfectly self-sufficient, eternal, perfect in his, in his being, all-powerful. Does this matter? Well, yes. Briefly, two practical implications. Number one, consider if this is true of God, not contained by any house, not a body but a spirit, omnipresent, infinite, eternal, then doesn't it mean that God is everywhere? This is such an important word of comfort, maybe especially for those of you that feel isolated alone or maybe hurting, and you know hurt and pain also often has the effect of making us feel alone. The world closes in on you. You feel like you're the only one going through what you're going through, and you need to know from Scripture you are not alone. Psalm 139 says it, where can I hide from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up there, you're there. If I go down here, you're there. Everywhere I go. I mean, you have to love God for that to be good news and not feel like you got a stalker chasing after you, right? But let's assume that for a second. God, all comfort, all goodness, all love, all peace and presence, all conviction, yes, all truth, all glory, all radiance, all majesty, all strength, all power, all of God with you, with you, wherever you are, and whatever it is that you're facing, equipping you, loving you, supporting you, serving you, convicting you, mobilizing you, protecting you, preserving you. God is everywhere. That's good news. Secondly, it's important to know out of this that God made you out of unconditional love with no strings attached. Now, that might just sound like a platitude. Well, God loves you. No, but there's something more that we're saying here. Have you ever given something to someone, but you actually did it because you want something from them? You know, you've given them something, and you're like, I hope they'll give me something on my birthday, and I hope they'll treat me nicer. I'll hope they'll come through when I need them. I hope, right? Strings attached. That's how we often, let's confess, I do too, give to people conditionally. 
What does it mean that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything from us, that he did not create out of that spirit, that God is infinite, eternal, self-sufficient, self-generating? What does that mean? This is what it means. God did not create you, did not make you because he needed you. He did not need you to pay him back. He does not need you to give him anything. He made you because he loves you, full stop, period. He made you because he looks at you and delights in you, period. He made you so that he can enjoy you and invite you into an enjoyment relationship covenant with him, period. That is why he made this universe, this world. And let me explain just for a second. It's because God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. There was no loneliness in the perfection of God's being. They were always a community. There was always an exchange of love. There was always relationship. Before the world began, they were fine without me. <laughs> I mean, truly fine without any of this. So why make all of this and you and me in this world, in this universe? Why, why, why? It was an overflow of God's love and joy. It was just an overabundance, a, a, a spilling over of what they shared, which is how even human relationships work. The deepest of romances, the deepest of commitments, the deepest of joy that's found in human relationships seeks to spill itself over into other people's lives, whether if that's progeny or just community. You want to share. God wanted eternally to share, and that's why he made things and people and this stuff, but not because he needed you, and that means he loves you. He loves you unconditionally with a no-strings-attached love. Verse 25, again, he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God created all things as an act of giving, not needing. Verse 25, rather, he himself gives. He gives. He's a giving God. He's a creating God. He's an overflowing God. And all of this is a genuine overflow of God's joy and love. Okay, third point, quickly. Quickly then, God made us. We've already started to touch on this. Let's just wrap it up with this. God didn't just make a physical creation. He made human beings, us. Verse 28b, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And he repeats that word again in 29. Offspring. See, the apostle stops short of calling human beings God's children. That word children or sons and daughters, the Bible reserves for the special relationship that's found with those who are brought into God's family by faith in Jesus Christ. That's a special saving kind of adoption and inclusion into God's family. But here he does recognize that there's a certain way in which we are deeply, intimately connected to God, no matter what your beliefs are. We are his offspring, and that reflects another phrase that we find in the Bible, this idea of being made in God's image. Genesis 1:27 speaks of it. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created them male and female. He created them. What does that mean? We are unique 
reflections of God, like God. Human beings are like God in our rationality, our ability to reason, in our relationality, in our natural inclination to connect in relationships with one another, in our creativity, the way in which we're able to make and produce and use gifts and talents to do things kind of like how God does things as many creators in this world. Human beings, friends, are the crown of God's creation, his prized possessions. Listen, our pets are precious. They are. But let's not get things confused that God sees human beings as completely, not even in the same ballpark category of care, love, and reflection of all that God is, those who are made in his image, human beings. Now, a couple quick applications, practical things. What difference does this belief make that we are made by God? God made us, and he made us in his image. Three quick things. Number one, it impacts how we love our neighbors. And this is what I mean, that we begin to recognize that every single person, regardless of their belief, regardless of their life choices, are made in God's image, equally offspring of God and endowed with human dignity. And in fact, it's this very belief that we're made by God that forms the Christian basis for human rights. It also forms the basis for treating people that believe differently with respect. Again, regardless of their religious persuasion or their life choices, we're called to respect our neighbors. Paul models this in verse 22. He's walking around this Areopagus square, and he says, look, I see in every way that you are very religious. His first word is not a word of condemnation. It's not one of judgment. It's engagement. Why? Because believing that people are made in God's image informs you that these are also people that can reason together with you, that have the capacity to be persuaded, that can be talked to and communicated with, even perhaps leading them to a saving understanding of who Jesus is. But you don't give up, and you don't check out, and you don't just blast and run either. Paul is engaging. And in fact, in verse 28, he even quotes the philosopher Epimenides. And when he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, he's actually quoting the Stoic philosopher Eratus. So he's making use of these sources, of these authorities, even that his neighbors would have recognized. Would we love and respect our neighbors in like manner? Number two, this teaches us gratitude. If you are made in God's image, if you are made by God, then you can know for sure you are not an accident. Maybe you've had a nagging feeling in your heart. Maybe you don't even say it out loud because it sounds sort of, I don't know, childish, but it's not because it haunts so many of us. You are not an accident. Your life is meaningful because you are the offspring of God. You are crowned with his glory. 
And someone says, well, that's fine and all, but I don't even think, think I believe in God, so I don't know that this is relevant to me. But don't you know that if you are, in fact, made by God, even if you don't recognize that you've been made by him, how offensive, even insulting it is not to recognize that and not to give him thanks, not to give him the gratitude that he deserves. How insulting it can be not to recognize the one who made you. Ellie Weasel, the great Holocaust survivor and thinker, once said, the opposite of love is not hate, the opposite of love is indifference. How true is that even for God? You say, but I'm not shaking my fist against God. I just don't care. Perhaps that's the greatest, highest form of hate. Perhaps God is right to be offended by him investing so much into your life, every breath you take, and yet you don't recognize him for being the giver of all your life. Gratitude. Relatedly is accountability. God made us so we owe him everything. As the apostle said, he's Lord of heaven and earth. And because we're made in God's image, we're actually expected to look and act like God. This is why God actually places moral expectation on his offspring and especially his children. Because we are being made in his likeness. We're supposed to be like God, loving like God, holding to truth like God. Caring for others, being generous towards others. And so God, of course, through his apostle, pronounces a word of judgment. Verse 30, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. Because we are accountable to the one who made us. Don't think about this just in terms of, do I believe in a creator? Think about this in terms of, if there is a creator, don't I believe that I would owe this creator gratitude? Would owe this creator my life? Raise the question with yourself and understand if it is true, then we are accountable. Do you know you're accountable? That we are, especially if we've been indifferent towards God, deserving of his judgment. Do we know this? More than that, do we know the man of whom God speaks, that Paul speaks? The man that God has appointed. Yes, he will judge the world with justice. But until that day, the gospel is that he will save the world with his love. Do you understand who is it that Paul was talking about as he finished up this sermon? It's Jesus, of course, the unnamed man. Paul says God raised him from the dead. Why was he dead? Because he died to pay for our sins, for our insulting indifference, for our ingratitude, for our idolatry. Jesus died the death we should have died to give us the life that God, in fact, created us to live as his offspring. The God who made us, who has authority over us, to whom we owe everything, who gives us breath and life, do you know this very same God, in the person of his Son, gave up breath 
and life and everything to save us. The author of life himself gave up life to die for us, that we might be called not just his offspring, but his beloved sons and daughters. The great preacher and theologian Augustine in the fifth century so eloquently preached about this when he said this, God so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy, he the word, without whom all human eloquence is mute. The wonder of the gospel embedded in the story of God's creation of the world. The creator of all things, infinite and eternal and all-powerful, loved you and me. Made himself small, humbled himself, died for us, even dying on the cross. Don't you see? That's really what it means to affirm, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. God made everything. God is unmade. God made you and me. But beloved, you've got to get this. This is more than just the story of God as our creator. It's the story of God's love. Let's pray. Help us to see that love even this week in the world that you've made. Help us to see it in each other. Seal these truths in our hearts, O oh God. God, our maker, our unmade maker, our one who made us like himself and loves us ever to the end, saving us, our creator, our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name.